Yes. Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late to transportation. Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Employee of the Month. On this episode, I have someone who changed my life when I was trying to break into what I wanted to do, which is comedy writing or TV writing. And I worked in foster care. I was doing a doctorate in clinical psych. Basically, the only time I'd been on stage technically was teaching social workers how to use healthcare. <laughs> so, so anyways, I contacted someone I knew in foster care who I'd seen writing for the New York Times, Seth Kugel. You can check out his work. He said, take a class with Sue Shapiro. I signed up for a class with Sue Shapiro. It's a journalism class. And she also teaches on all kinds of writing. Go to SueShapiro.net. She is a phenomenal writer. You can read her books, and we talk about her latest one. But I, I cannot stress more what a remarkable teacher she is because it is, it's very hard. It's easy to find people who are brilliant at what they do. Very few of them are also brilliant teachers. And she is one of them. And she also has a remarkable capacity for not only generously sharing contacts of people in the business and agents and uh, literary managers and publishers, but also how best to approach them. So I strongly recommend checking her out. You'll understand exactly why once you listen to our interview. I don't read a lot of self-help and how-to books, but Ross McCammon sent me his about work. It's called Works Well with Others. Terrific read. It's actually smart and helpful. And I also want to just tell you all how excited I am for the live show. So if you are planning on coming to New York, if you live in New York, do not walk. Run to your internet. Uh, Go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to get tickets. We have incredible live shows coming up. WNBA basketball player Candace Wiggins, Greta Gerwig, David Cross, Amy Sedaris, Josh Radner, Tarbuck meditation teacher. And breathe. And after you breathe, and after you check out the Employee of the Month Show.com's podcast to get tickets for live shows, you can listen for free to this wonderful podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know. You can go to Twitter, you can go to Facebook, you can go to um, iTunes and leave a comment. I really appreciate all of it. And I just want to thank you also for the donations. Harnish Foundation, thank you. And brainpickings.org, thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please enjoy my interview with the one and only Sue Shapiro in five, four, three, two, and leg kicks, leg kicks, leg kicks. I'm just kidding. Just sit back and listen. I am thrilled to be with one of my favorite people in New York, and I will um, say on the record, and I I think I speak for a zillion writers, the reason I um, even can pretend to have a career. So um, I'd like to welcome Sue Shapiro. Do you go by Susan Shapiro officially? Susan. Okay. Should I not call you Sue? (laughs) Susan. Does anyone call you Sue? Everyone calls me Sue, but the byline is Susan. Okay. I will make sure to call you Susan. It's like Skip Gates. Right. Your byline is Henry Louis Gates. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, everyone remember that her byline is Henry Louis Gates. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have your latest book. You've written nine books. This is my tenth book. Tenth book. Um, I want to go through so many things with you. Um, 
one is what's never said is the the newest novel. This is your third novel. Yes. You have a um, as a writer, your novels read like memoirs, and your memoirs read like novels. I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you that. Um, but I want I want to hear like how much is this autobiographical? Is that just a sexist question that women get asked and men never get asked? Um, or I'd, maybe I've read too many of your books and so then I bleed reality with fiction. <laughs> Everyone says that my fiction is better than my nonfiction and my family says my nonfiction is fiction. Um, I have no imagination, basically. And so in every story I've ever written, there's somebody from the Midwest who winds up in the big city finding love and their dream come true. And no matter what I do, it winds up. The only time that I seem to be able to vary it is um, I co-author books. And when I co-author yes. books, I've, I've done that with um, my physical therapist was a Bosnian war survivor, and yes. so we told his story. And then my addiction specialist has 30 years of being doing addiction in Arkansas. And so so luckily I can get away from my own voice when I co-author. I did a book, um, uh, Food for the Soul, uh, with Ian Frazier, um, based on this program we did at Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen. So so luckily when I do those kind of books, I get away from my voice, but then otherwise I seem to have, uh, I seem to always wind up, I'm tr I try to rehash it, but basically um, I've had, this is my whole life story, um, born in the Midwest, really stupid relationships, really stupid addictions, moved to New York, got a great shrink, quit the addictions, quit the stupid relationships, got married, that's the whole shebang. So I kind of seem to put it all in a blender often, but how? Yeah, because addiction comes up with food mainly, not everything. with, with oh. everything you yeah. feel and smoking. Oh, yeah. I remember. That oh yes, yeah. uh, smoking, dope, drugs, alcohol, the whole. And now, interestingly, since I quit everything, I think I'm addicted to books and uh, email. Wait, well, okay, one. so when is it addiction and when is it obsession? I'm glad you asked that question because we actually have a test in Unhooked How to Quit Anything saying when is it uh, habit that's problematic, or when is it not? And there's really like 10 different things you can ask yourself. And here's a really, here's the easiest one. Stop doing it for a week. And if it doesn't hurt, it's probably a habit. And if you're going crazy and sweating at three in the morning, flipping out, you got a problem. And what if you're sweating at, like for me with chocolate? Like if I weren't eating it, I would be really anxious. I don't think my, I wouldn't have physical withdrawal. I would just have emotional. You can absolutely be addicted. In fact, they do studies. You can absolutely be addicted to sugar. You can be addicted to chocolate. Um, I was addicted to diet soda, and I really had to do a huge... What was yours, tab? Um, I did tab and then even diet co-caffeine-free. It wasn't even caffeine, and it took me months to get over it. So what do you do now? You don't do anything. Water, tea. Yeah, yeah I'm really, I have the most boring life. But what's, what's interesting is that... Ever since I have an extremely boring life, I seem to write more, because what else do you do? And I do feel passionate for it. I do think that that's right, that there's like this fantasy that um, writers, you know, are, have these drug-filled or, you know, are drunks. And, and it's like, it's, it's, wrong. it's like you're so much more productive when you aren't struggling. I think Flaubert said, um, have, a, have a really boring life so that your writing is wild and crazy. In my case, I was kind of lucky because basically from age... 13 to 35, I was a total maniac. And so I'm still mining all old material. Like um, I always tell my students, write about your obsessions. And so I'm still writing about ex-boyfriends. Meanwhile, I've been like the most boring, monogamous person with, the, with a great husband for 25 years, still writing about ex-boyfriends. But I'm, it's, it's still an obsession. In fact, the fact that I can't do it anymore maybe makes me more obsessive about it. Yeah. So the uh, what's never said is all about a relationship I had when I was um, in graduate school at 20.
And, you know, the main character, Lila, comes to the city from, you know, the Midwest, and she's Jewish and, and from a religious Jewish family. And you're from Michigan. I was curious, was your family quite religious? No, I tried to, I tried little variations. Okay. So what happened was, I'm from Michigan. She's from Wisconsin. Yes. And, no, I'm, not, I'm from a Jewish family, but not religious. Um, but actually... There was some there was Israeli characters and a lot of Jewish stuff going on, and so I thought just to change it up a little bit, um, and also because because I know so many editors that are Jewish and I write for all the Jewish publications, so I thought let me try that, and it actually was fun to to do that, and it got excerpted in uh, the Jerusalem Post and uh, the Forward and Detroit Jewish News, so it was actually cool to get, to sort of try to cultivate a little bit of a new audience. And when you're, this particular book takes place in a graduate, you know, MFA mm-hmm. program uh, for poetry, and it's um, the early '80s, late '70s, and it's also now too. It, it flips between mm-hmm. the, the two. Um, I was just curious, like, did that happen where you saw someone who you had dated who was 20 years older who didn't remember you? Yes. So I don't have a great imagination. So actually, what happened was I was at an event with my husband. And I saw this person who I hadn't seen. It was close to 30 years. And um, he didn't know me, didn't recognize me, walked away. And I was kind of like floored. It kind of freaked me out. Because you had had an affair with him when you were younger. And that's never happened to me before. I mean, when I go to Michigan, people on the street that know me from kindergarten are like, hey, Sue, how's it going? So I just somehow, and maybe I was like turning 50, it just flipped me out. Oh, it's the worst. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and um, and just, you know, do I have a distorted self-image? Did I overplay it? Was it not what I thought it was? Um, just extremely um, confusing and insane. And on the cab ride back, I was near tears and weirding out, and my husband's like, what's up? And so I told him. I said, you know, I just can't believe he didn't even recognize me. And my husband said, the short, bald guy that was glaring at me all night, he knew exactly <laughs> who we were. Oh, my God. He said, I was wondering what the hell that guy's problem was. And I'm like, are you serious? And he's just started laughing. He thought it was so funny. And he's like, people recognize you from kindergarten. You look the same. What do you... And so, but then, so I came home to write about it, and it actually interested me even more, the thought that... 30 years later, he might still be pissed enough to pretend he didn't know who I was was even more interesting. So I brought it into my writing group. I have this really, really tough writing group, and they're usually, you bring in something rough, and they're usually like, throw it away or start on page seven. And I brought this in, and it was kind of like, um, you should have gotten old and bitter a long time ago because this rocks. Like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And the last line of it, you know, the whole story, the last line of it was, I did it in third person, um, something to the effect of, out of all the scenarios Lila had envisioned all these years, she never once thought Daniel Wildman wouldn't remember. So then it just seemed like it, what had to go next was how they met. Yeah. And we had a funny way that we met at, at school. So I remember the first line he said to me when we met, because I had skipped two grades, is you know, I introduced him and shook my hand, and he said, uh, so you're gonna, are you going to finish your PhD by the end of the party? And so I just started writing that scene. So it was, uh, so it sort of wrote itself in a lot of ways. I loved the little details, like how when you get to New York, if you don't go up here, you're like, I can't believe these people don't have a disposal. <laughs> it's like such a specific for people who don't grow up here. And, and I, also, I remember, I, I remember going, reaction. you know, he was a well known writer, and I remember going to his apartment, and I was like, 
famous writers have little tiny creepy hovels because I'm from Michigan where my closet was bigger than my first apartment. Right. Yeah, so that was that was really surprising. And the amount of sex that happened in the MFA program, like is that still do you think that's still the case? No, I think it I I'm told from my students that it's it's still a little bit, but when I was there it was just rampant. And there were certain certain professors who were known for um, in my in my day, it was more extreme. Now I ask my students, and they say no because of sexual harassment and new laws and stuff like that. That it's it's less. But there's so many famous um, male writers who are notorious. Oh yeah, I hear this. stories from every like every day. I hear a new story from young students who tell me, and it's and it always starts the same. He wants me to be his assistant, and I could come out to him for with the Hamptons for four days to help him with his new manuscript. And then he's going to introduce me to his New Yorker editor. It's yes. always that story. <laughs> <laughs> you can smell it from far away. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, and I, I wanted to ask, because you have an incredible ability to write in both first and third. Is there one you prefer? Why yeah, do you I usually prefer first person. I always do first person. But what do you what, get out of that versus third? Um, first person to me, well, first of all, I, I do a lot of nonfiction and essays. So that's just the voice I've always used in essays. So it just comes very fast and easy to me. And actually, most of my students, like my first assignment is write about your most humiliating secret. And tons of my students get published and they're always first person pieces. So I love first person, but I did, for a lot of reasons, I wanted to do something different. So I have three memoirs out already in first person writing. So I felt like, let's try something different. And I thought if I do it in third person, it'd be interesting to be half in her point of view, half in his point of view, which is kind of Rashomon. So the, the problem I had with that was that when, when I brought it in to my writing group and showed people, um, they didn't like the character of Daniel. And at first I got really worried because I love Philip Roth and Saul Bellow. So I was trying to do like a neurotic Jewish character, but it turns out they believed him and they understood him they just were ambivalent, and so basically it seemed as if the book could still work. You don't have to love him, but you do have to either understand him or like Lila. Philip Roth was one of the people I was thinking of as one of those notorious men who <laughs> slept around um, with, with, with younger women, um, or, and, and probably women his own age as well. Um, so with this, like writing in a male voice, is, is that different for you, or are there... How yeah. do you get into that? Well, head? I'll tell you what happened was that I did a couple of memoirs and then I did two novels and truthfully they tanked and my last novel sold like two copies and I couldn't get arrested and I every five years I seem to um, get rejected, get depressed, have a nervous breakdown and have to do therapy to reinvent myself. And luckily I know that now. So I just sort of let it happen and then I do the reinvention. So it was happening after the after my novel, my last novel, and I wound up um, the reinvention. At this point, I had already quit all my addictions, so I was really addicted to books, so I couldn't really let it go. So I wound up doing a book with my addiction specialist, who was like at the time like a 60-year-old male living in Arkansas, and we did it in his voice. And that book was a New York Times bestseller, Unhooked. And then my physical therapist, after I hurt my back, my physical therapist was from Bosnia, and he told me his story about surviving the war when he was 12. And so I then did that book, which came out last year from Penguin, and, and did really well. So I had basically spent five years doing male voices. And that was sort of scary because I'm this motor mouth raging feminist and all of a sudden I've spent five years telling male macho stories and I thought, uh-oh, did I lose my own voice? And so it was, um, so I definitely wanted to come back to be female and 
um, Jewish and, and, and be that person again. At the same time, having been in men's heads for so long, it wasn't that hard to go to try Daniel. And it was kind of fun. You know, because, um, again, it was different. I just didn't want, I've already written three memoirs, so I didn't want to do the same thing. I wanted to see if I could stretch my muscle a little bit. So I'm just curious, like, what your process is. Do you write during the morning, afternoon? What, what's your schedule? Yeah, I basically wake up seven days a week and just get to the computer and I just write. And uh, I had a mentor at one point, a best-selling mentor, and uh, whenever I said I have writer's block, he used to say, plumbers don't get plumber's block. Don't be self-indulgent. You just get to work. And he said, a page a day is a book a year. And actually, a page a day is a book and a half a year. So that kind of stayed with me. And when I quit all my addictions, the addiction specialist gave me, we, we sort of had, I had to do a lot of rules because an addict shouldn't let their moods dictate their day because then that just leads you back to using. So I had to have kind of rules. And so I just wake up and write. I, I pretty much block out the world. I don't do breakfast, I don't do lunch, I don't do dinner. I just sort of uh, pretty much gave up social life. Um, I work first on the books, and then I'll do a second tier of newspaper magazine stuff, and then I go out and teach at night. And it just worked like a charm the minute I started doing it. It was just just a miracle. So it's been like, you know, 10 books in 11 years. It's incredible. Yeah, so it just, it just works, so I'm just going to keep doing it. And I did have to... Quitting social life was hard, and I actually wrote a humor piece about um, quitting guilt, you know, which was, it started, um, I spent the last two years saying no, because I really went from being Miss Social, let's party with everybody until three in the morning and dinners and all that stuff, to I really can't do that anymore. So that was a little bit difficult, but um, I remember I had a book party, and I was so worried because I'd been saying no to everybody for for my first book, Five Men, It Broke My Heart, and I thought everyone's going to hate me, I've been so cold, I've cut off everybody, and I invited 250 people to the book party, and 500 people showed up, and I thought, you know what, it's not really ruining my social life, it's just, it, you know, it's easier, I made my schedule easier for me, and weirdly being less available didn't make me less popular, so I kind of stuck with that. You didn't feel lonely? Not really. I mean, I'm very happily married, but luckily my husband's a workaholic, but so we're together every night and every morning. And, um, you know, a lot of my teaching involves classes with 20 and 30 young, exciting, cool kids that keep me young. And then I do two writing groups um, at night on Thursdays and Sundays. So I actually have quite a few people in my life. I just don't do, I don't go out for breakfast. I don't go out to lunch. I don't go out to dinner. I don't go out to bars. Um, I don't do dinner parties. But, but I love book events, and, and actually, weirdly, most book events, you can't smoke, drink, eat anyway. You know, that you're at a bookstore. Because so terrible. No, you're at, you know, at bookstores. <laughs> Usually you're at a bookstores, and also most writers are cheap, and so they'll be serving, you know, wine and, and you know, wine plastic Wine you don't want to drink. Right, right. And so I just bring my own bottled water. But, so, but interestingly, most of the events I'm doing, like I'm doing a big event at Barnes & Noble um, this Tuesday, and then I'm doing a book at the New School, book event at the New School, so they just hand you a bottle of water. And, and you know what's weird? I have more fun. Like, it's the most, it's so exciting to me. I actually feel like I'm on cocaine when I do book events. It is. It's so exciting and fun for me. And it's clean and it helps me business-wise. And, you know, so it's, uh, and it actually, a lot of the events I gear towards students or aspiring writers trying to help them. So it's actually a really cool combination. That's a great segue because one of your greatest gifts is so anti the sort of elitist establishment of the literary world, which is like, secretive in terms of how you get in and then when you get published you're like oh why was that so hard you are the only person I know as a professor and I was in academia and was doing a doctorate so I know it 
um, and I do certainly have many journalist friends, we're the only person I know who breaks down how to get in, how to get published, and not make it into some mystifying um, thing at all. And I, I was just curious, like, where that generosity comes from? Because it's not just like, oh, I figured it out for myself. You share this with so I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people have taken your class. 15,000 former students I have in 23 years. Um, it started because um, they say you're supposed to teach the class you wanted to take. So I, I spent $30,000 on an MFA, which I love, with Nobel Pulitzer Prize winning authors who were my teachers. And I came out a year and a half later not even knowing how to write a cover letter. And nobody would tell you. So I got a job at The New Yorker, and I, I worked basically for 10 or 15 years to figure out what's fiction, what's nonfiction, how do you get published, who do you send it to, what do they want, do you pitch it, do you write it? So when the new school asked me to teach in 1993, I told them the truth, you know, and I said I spent $30,000 to get a degree, and I don't really want to do fiction 101, poetry 101, journalism 101, because you already have a lot of teachers doing that. I want to try my own method, which I call the instant gratification takes too long school of writing, where the goal of the class is to write and publish a great piece by the end of the class to pay for the class. And I just thought that's what I cared about because I was publishing seven pieces a week and I knew all the editors and that's when it got exciting for me, when I'd see my bylines when I was in my 20s. So I just experimentally tried it once and I had 12 students and then eight got published and four got over $1,000 in the first class I ever taught. And so I made a rule, which is if you sell a piece for $1,000, I get dinner. And then it just, every single class got more exciting from there. So I basically teach two sections of the same class for 15 weeks. And then I, I it's so popular that I do two five-week sections. So I'm teaching four classes a term and they always are overstuffed and it's always fun. But how do you balance, like we were just talking about your schedule where you're writing articles in addition to writing a book and um, you're in two writing groups. So you're also reading other people's work. With I'm very compartmentalized. So basically um, with my students, I give you an assignment and you hand it in class. And when I'm at class, I'm really 100% with you, but then I don't answer emails until the next night. And I only do papers late at night. I have weird rituals for how I do papers. I actually do what are they? a manicure, pedicure, a foot massage, and I can grade <laughs> like 13 papers. So one of my students saw me when she was cracking up. She said, this is the only, Shapiro's the only one. This is how you relax. In one hour, I do a manicure, pedicure, foot massage, back massage, and I come out with 13 papers graded, and I feel very relaxed. <laughs> This is like you go to the salon. Yeah, they and know do me. This. Yeah, they know me, and I just do my papers there. That's one one place that I do them. But um, but in terms of so, well, it's very exciting for me because I sort of relive the vicarious thrill of breaking in. But also inadvertently, um, my classes became wildly popular, and I get paid much more than most teachers. And um, they give me money for stipends, and I get the classrooms I want and the times I want. So it actually wound up being a great business decision because nobody does it. And now I have 85 students who've done books with me well, in the last 10 years. a lot of people do it. And so, I mean, it's, it's kind of fabulous that without tenure, you've essentially managed to make this into a lucrative practice because a lot of people teach who shouldn't necessarily be teaching, both in academia and outside. Interestingly, I was on a tenure track at, at the NYU Journalism School, but we just um, came to blows over everything. Like they would say to me, they would want me to give 18-year-old undergrads a 7,000-word assignment. And I would say, Why? And they would say, because they should learn how to do this because then they'll get published. I'm like, I've never met an editor in the history of the world that's going to publish 7,000 words from an 18-year-old if I give them 300-word assignment and they get it in Time Out New York and they get 50 bucks and get to a free book or a free movie, 
you know, passes, they'll be really excited and then they'll write more. And, and by the way, I have, I have students that are like on the cover of the New York Times magazine every week and in the New Yorker and, uh, you know, Random House and Viking Penguin. So it's not like you can't build up to there. But I just found the, the academia, it was insane. And they were also like nine o'clock meetings with 24 people. And I, would, I can't see straight in the morning and they would just be like, what is an A? And I'm just like, I'm going to shoot myself in the head. So when I started teaching at the new school, I said to them, I'll give my heart and soul to my students. But you can't, I can't go to meetings and you can't, you can't get into my syllabus. You have to, I have to do my syllabus. Nobody in my family can work for anybody else. We all have to, we're all like too stubborn, pigheaded. Um, but anyway, the other part of it, which I found um, really interesting with my therapy was that my um, shrink always said, um, you can't get anything from an unhappy person because they have nothing to give. And you would be much more likely to get something from a happy stranger that you've never met before from somebody unhappy. And so he basically laid it out for me and said, you have to get what you need because when you get what you need, you're really generous and magnanimous and it's much easier. So what I found was even though other people perceive it as selfish, very selfish, because I really shut down and you can't call me if you buzz me without an appointment, I don't get it. I don't pick up the phone, I don't do my email. I, I get what I need during the day, which is usually a good five or six hours of writing my own book. I get time with my husband. I need time to work out and to do my own weird restricted diet. But then, you know, I come out at 5.30 or 6 o'clock and I have a lot of energy to give and I'm really excited. And when I go to class, I could give everything, but then it has to cut off. Someone can walk me home and I can help them that night. But then the next morning I have to go back to doing my own thing. So people get annoyed because all my students are like emailing me pieces and you're not allowed to email me pieces. I need hard copies that you get me for my class. But I'm getting better at being rigid because what I realize is that when I get what I want and when I can compartmentalize, I can re it's really exciting, you know, and I have, I have like x-ray vision about what's get, what gets published at this point, and I know all the editors and agents, and it's absolutely a thrill, and, and students start to understand that I'll, you know, that I'll help them with anything they want, way more than other teachers, where you can have all my editors, all my agents. Um, I'm actually doing book events with my student now. We're going to L.A. and, and um, uh, New York and Boston. So it's really exciting and fun for me, but I definitely have to be, so, so I'm basically amazingly generous and amazingly selfish all at the same time. And I have a lot of students who've surpassed me, and I have this great young Ian Stargazer who warned me, he said, you will take others higher than you could take yourself. And I have a couple students that get like $500,000 book deals and, you know, and, and really movie deals and uh, get in the New Yorker their first try kind of thing. And I have to be really careful to get what I need so I don't resent it. And when I get what I need, then I'm thrilled for them, and then we could do events together. But I do, it is an equation that only works when I'm doing both. When you do um, either the memoirs or the fiction, um, have people uh, come up to you and had feedback about seeing themselves or thinking they're seeing themselves? How do you deal with treading on reality? Yeah, I always might. The, the, the advice I give my students is the first piece of advice I always say is the first piece you write that your family hates means that you found your voice, as you know from your great <laughs> New York Times uh, Lives column. Um, I've been in therapy a long time, you know, and I talk about it a lot because it was extremely helpful. So I definitely have to navigate. It's my story and I want to tell it. At the same time, I actually, there's a lot of secrets I actually keep. People are surprised, but I don't out anybody. And my rule is you have to question, trash, and challenge yourself more than anybody else. And I have had people that don't like what I've written. Um, I remember with Five Men Who Broke My Heart, 
Um, I sent it to one of the guys in it, and he emailed me back, ha, with an exclamation point, and then he never spoke to me again. And my husband later said, you should do that with all your old boyfriends. <laughs> and um, I had one, one guy loved it and wrote, you have written a better character than I am a person. Aww. So I've gotten mixed, mixed responses. Um, the most interesting one I had was for Five Men Who Broke My Heart, one of the wives of the men started emailing me. That was Yeah, that was Wait, really what did she say? She questioned some of the things that I wrote, and then she started telling me about how she had an affair with one of her professors when I was just breaking up with them and they were just starting to go out. She wanted to be a writer, so it was just really, that was, that was my most interesting. That was my, I have to write Maybe about that'll that be the next book. I know, book. I know, I have to write about it at some point. Um, but, but yeah, I always, it, you know, it's always a negotiation. My family hates everything I write. When they came, I remember they flew in for my book party for Five Men Who Broke My Heart, and I was so excited, but then they were, like, huddling with my crazy Jewish relatives, and I would overhear them, and they were like, how are you holding up? Are you okay? As if they were paying a shiva call. <laughs> on the other hand, when I was on the Today Show, they were, like, eating bagels with all their friends. So I did a great therapy session where the shrink um, had me write down the line that I told my parents, which was, you could be proud of the accomplishment of my publishing a book without loving the book. So many students have called their parents to say that. It's great. I think it's really helpful because it, it is just so hard for those of us who have a moral compass. And you're like, no, my story is worth telling. I will say that is part of the reason why I have three of my books are novels. There are some stories that I could not tell in nonfiction. But isn't it harder to sell a novel? Depends. Okay. It depends. When is it easier to sell a novel and when is it easier to sell a memoir? Um, I had uh, Deb Garrison, who's this brilliant poet and editor at Knopf. Um, we, do, we did some panels together at the NYU MFA program, and she said something really, really helpful to me when I wrote Five Men. I was debating what to call it because I did change some facts, and she said to me, a novel that is merely autobiographical is a great disappointment, but a memoir that reads like a novel is a great surprise. So the rule for me became, if it's basically true, then I try to make it more of a page turner and I'm very, very clear in an author's note. Like in Five Men, I said right in the front, I said, names, dates, and personal characteristics have been changed for literary cohesion to protect privacy and so my husband won't divorce me. So very upfront about the changes that are made. Um, on the other hand, if, it's, if what I'm writing is merely autobiographical and not exciting, then I know I have to embellish it a lot to make it more fictionalized. So, for example, what's never said, um, some things were true, but then towards the end I really tried to blow it up and make it crazier in order to make it dramatic. You know, because an old relationship that didn't work out 30 years ago and you both marry other people, that's not dramatic. Um, has anyone ever written about you? Yes. And what's that like? Weird. It's weird. Um, I haven't been so far that I know of, I haven't been horribly offended. Um, I've had a couple interviewers who will say things like, um, you know, something like, she chain smokes and talks a mile a minute, or uh, dyed black hair, you know, or little things that get on my nerves. But, but basically, I've been lucky. So far, I've been lucky, and there maybe there's many books in the process that I don't know about, but um, luckily, I haven't been. My husband uses things from real life. Um, for my family and me, but it's never with my name on it. I was wondering if it changed how you write about people having had those experiences, because I've certainly had, um, first of all, I've just had uh, people write about me and my show in ways that are just not factually incorrect, and I'm like, I can never write for the publication you write for, and yet, like, I'm 
much more um, diligent in, in those respects. You know, the truth of the matter is that I let a lot go. You know, because if there's minor mistakes, there's always minor mistakes. That's what I've done. Like people get my age wrong, or they get where I live wrong, or they get quotes wrong. And the truth of the matter is, I don't look a gift horse in the mouth at the uh, in the mouth exactly. at this point. So if it's overall a really positive piece, who cares? You know, yeah. I just let it go. Um, yeah, one person once wrote a piece. Interestingly, wrote a piece about for my humiliation essay about I humiliated them by putting them on the spot trying to do the humiliation essay and she came back two years later like all excited that she had this piece which was her humiliation essay and she literally she showed it to me and I didn't think it was very good and she actually made me look horrible you know because it was like she was this poor innocent sweet little girl and I was demanding that she come up cough up some humiliation that she didn't have but then she wanted the name of my editor at the New York Times to send it to so I was like, nobody's going to publish that in the New York Times, first of all. Second of all, why are you sending it to me if it's not that flattering to sell? So I've had, I've had stuff like that. That is really funny. And what do you do in an instance where um, you could jeopardize that contact, right, if you're sending something that you don't think is good enough? I'm pretty black and white clear, you know, so I have rules with my students. And I, you know, if I know an editor and they've come to my class, they've come to my panels, you're always allowed to say these words, Susan Shapiro gave me your email, or my teacher Susan Shapiro, um, uh, oh, you were great at my teacher Susan Shapiro's panel. That's absolutely fine. You're not allowed to say, Susan Shapiro told me to send you my piece, so you'll spend, you'll pay a lot of money, and then I'll get a big book deal, like all her others. Like people write really ridiculous things. Yeah. So we have to be really careful. I don't like it. Susan Shapiro told me to send it to you because that's sort of infantilizing the person. So um, that's infantilizing the person. Well, it's infantilizing themselves because it's like, oh, so you have no free will that my teacher told me to send you the piece to the New York Times. Well, it, it may sort be. Of, it may be that she thought it was so good that. I just say, you know, the rule is, and I make it really clear, it's literally on my syllabus. My teacher, Susan Shapiro, gave me your email, or thanks for coming to my teacher, Susan Shapiro's class. Yeah. You know, because we're all about words. So those words are appropriate. Yeah. You know, those are the words that work for me. And actually, those are the words that work for editors, you know, because really I know quite a few editors who email me and say, okay, we need pieces for this. This is our new topic. Yeah. You know, get me some of your great students. You know, so it works for editors. And sometimes they'll say, they'll do a panel with me with 500 people and they'll say, don't give, you know, let's not give out my email so I'll filter through. And I'm just really blunt. You know, if somebody asks me for an email and I don't think the piece is ready, I'll just say, look, I don't think this piece is ready. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm only trying, it only does everybody good if you wait until the piece is ready to get published because then it's big, excite, exciting, wonderful thing. But I'm very, very specific because I can't expect undergrads to understand the process. So I try to I try to really boil it down as much as possible, and really every term I have twenty or twenty or thirty different editors come to speak, and so they could be really specific about what they want. Also, well, I'm going to recommend people go to your website, um, susanshapiro.net, um, and they can find out about your classes and all of your books. And you have some fantastic, fantastic books. But I do want to recommend first and foremost, What's Never Said, because um, that's your newest novel, and it's out. And I um, got sucked in. It's a, it's a perfect. Weekend read. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing the show and for being such a gifted writer and um, candid and just hilarious and honest teacher. You're really good at what you do. Thank you. Um, thank you for doing the show. So, what did you think? Uh, 
It's really my favorite podcast since the last one. I thought it was a fascinating episode. I want to thank all of you for listening. I really want to thank Jelly D and Ian Mazoff for enabling this podcast to happen. And I am going to do a shout out to all of you to please give if you can. There are several ways to give. You can donate money. You can also write nice things about us on iTunes and on SoundCloud or however it is you listen to this podcast because those things help because in order for us to continue this labor of love, we're going to need a little more support. But I do also want to just say thank you to all of you who have been giving. It's been fantastic to have you along for the ride. And we have a whole new season coming up. Mm-hmm. Joe's Pop, we're going to be there monthly. So check out employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out more. And I think that's it. I think everyone else is just Enjoy their day. Yeah, yeah. Get out of here, guys. Yeah. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.